0: The story.
2: Well, you know, it was an instant regret the second I I went off that rail. When my hands left that rail and I was in free fall, I instantly realized I had made the greatest mistake of my life. And I thought to myself, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. And then I hit the water.
0: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, it's hard to believe, but Kevin Hines actually jumped off San Fran's Golden Gate Bridge and lived to tell the story. One of only a few to survive, but as we'll hear, God had plans for him. And now he's making an incredible difference as a spokesperson for suicide prevention. Kevin Hines is sharing his miraculous story of survival and healing with Shelley Scohan.
1: It really is a privilege that we are talking to you today because uh, it really is only by a series of miracles that you are still with us. It was a very dark part of your life uh, where you did jump off that bridge. Uh, maybe we'll just go back to the beginning though and see how I guess events transpired to get you to that point. You had a very difficult childhood to begin with, didn't you?
2: Well, that's right. I had a very uh, traumatic infancy actually and in what most people don't understand Uh, at least uh, those who are not psychologists, is that uh, the first three to nine months of any infant's life, if they are traumatic and dangerous and and, uh, rather horrifying, they can affect that child for the rest of that child's life. And that's what happened. Uh, My biological parents, although they loved each other dearly as I'm adopted, uh, they had two kids, myself and my brother, Jordash, and they could not take care of us because they were uh, medicating themselves and their their manic depression with uh, hardcore drugs and alcohol. And they would leave us unattended in uh, these seedy motels in San Francisco while they went out to score drugs. And they'd leave us unattended, unfed, unclothed, and it was detrimental to our well-being, and it caused not only abandonment issues and uh, neglect, uh, but a a great deal of pain um, emotionally even at that young age.
1: Wow, that is amazing how, I guess, we don't tend to be so aware of the little babies taking in so much at that age, but it's true, it's a very vital bonding time, isn't it?
2: That's right, it's vital to bonding, and if that, if that infant if that infant doesn't have an, uh, some kind of regular and a, uh, loving affection uh, and care on a regular basis, uh, if they're left to attend to themselves uh, it's, it's a very dangerous slope uh, they, they will lead uh, as they grow older uh, And it certainly affected the rest of my life
1: That must make it difficult for you now as an adult Looking back on that I guess it would be very easy for you to blame your parents For everything that went wrong in your life
2: You know, I never did I never blamed them for any of it They, they suffered terribly uh, with manic depression or What we today call bipolar disorder The very same brain disease I would later develop uh, and they, they didn't have the tools in the 1980s. They didn't have the people ready to help them uh, so much as we do today, at least in America. And I'm certainly here in Australia, in, in certain areas, they've got so, much re- so many resources now for people with mental struggles. And, and my biological parents, my first mom and dad, they didn't have that. They didn't have that support behind them. Uh, and they turned to drugs, and it destroyed them. And actually, I'll tell you, they died very tragically very tragic deaths because of drugs but more importantly they died uh, because of their mental struggles
1: Mm. it's a sad story from there and then it does I guess spiral out of control a little bit Um, you obviously everything started off in infancy for you you went into foster care and you and your brother both got sick
2: that's right my brother and I uh, both got a very bad strain of bronchitis and my only full-blooded brother died uh and, uh, and, and what you have to understand there is that the abandonment just superseded itself because I had lost my parents, and then I lost my brother, and yes, I was so tiny, but he was the person closest to me. He was the person next to me every day. I smelled, saw, touched, and heard him, and he disappeared without a trace, uh, and wow. that affected my infant body and brain, absolutely.
1: So you were still pretty young when that happened?
2: That's right. Yeah. We were supposed to be adopted together. We were bouncing around from home to home, and he was taken uh, by, by, by bronchitis. Um, and and so from there, uh, from there things got a, a, a little better eventually. I bounced around from home to home, you know, the kind of deal where you have a new mom or dad every couple of weeks, and that was also traumatic because not every one of those homes had viable parents who could take care of me well enough uh, so that I would adjust. Uh, and I bounced around from home to home until I entered into... Uh, the home of one Peter and Deborah Muller. And they were these two wonderful human beings. Peter was in the army, uh, Deborah was a housewife, and they had many foster children. uh, And and Peter had to be restationed, and so they moved. And so in in having to move, they had to give back all their foster children to the system uh, to be placed somewhere else. Uh, And what they did back then was they would have foster parents from all over come to their home and, uh, you know, in a sense, kind of pick and choose which child they wanted to take home. And uh, one fateful day, a woman named Deborah Joan Hines walked in that door. And you know my name is Hines, so you clearly know it. it you know it worked out. Uh, she walked in, and, and, and she was looking for a sister for the girl that already taken in. And she walked in, and she describes this to everyone. It uh, was the moment she fell in love. Uh, and so she and Pat Hines took me in, and they were uh, the family uh, I had been not knowingly hoping for. Uh, They were a beautiful family, and they wanted to create one of their own. They could have had their natural-born children, but they decided to adopt three kids from three separate families and make this melting pot of a beautiful family uh, and give us the hope and the future that we deserved.
1: Mm, How lovely. I mean, my heart was breaking when you were saying about all those abandonment issues and not to mention the medical impact that that does end up having on your brain as well. Uh, and then to hear that you know someone had taken you in, adopted you as their own, and that you did get the opportunity to have some happiness in your childhood—it's wonderful.
2: That's right, and I always maintain that I have two sets of parents. I don't—I don't differentiate between the two, only to explain details to people. You know, mm. uh, do I do that? Um, but I have two moms and two dads, uh, and the first two died tragically, but the, the second two um, raised me and gave me. Uh, and my brother and my sister, the gift of a future, and it was blessed and it was wonderful. Um, you know, we went to church, we were good practicing Catholics, and I still am, uh, with my wife. And our faith was strong, and it is strong today. And, you know, they didn't have to do that. They could have had their own kids. And they just, they figured in their, in their youth that they wanted to build a family, uh, from scratch for, with kids who, who had so little. And um, all three of us siblings ended up having severe mental struggles in life, and for a time, mine, mine seemed to be the most severe. And even though we adapted, we were given this gift of a future, and we had the best parents uh, won't could uh, produce. Um, we all got sick anyway because it was our, it was in our biology, it was in uh, our bodies. Um, you know, because my birth parents both had manic depression. Um, I had a 50% chance of of developing it, and, of course, I did.
1: Yeah. You were diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 17. What was it like being a teenager living with bipolar disorder, especially before you were formally diagnosed? What was that like?
2: Well, you know, when you're having a, I guess they would call it, a complete mental breakdown in the middle of high school, uh, right in the middle of a high school performance in a play, and you don't know what's going on, it's really one of the most scary things you can possibly imagine. Um, What occurred first for me was uh, developing extreme paranoid delusions. And that means that uh, everybody has a small amount of paranoia in all things in these days, and in this day and age when there's so many things to worry about. And I I developed extreme paranoia where I would believe that everyone around me, everyone near me, uh, all had plots for my assassination and were trying to take my life. Uh, I believed that the United States Postal Service workers in San Francisco, uh, the white trucks with those blue eagles on the side that you can see on TV, Mm -hmm. I believed that that the people driving those trucks had a plot for my assassination. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's absolutely preposterous, but at the time it it seemed so real because of psychosis, because of my brain. And from the paranoid delusions came manic highs that come with bipolar disorder. Uh, And these are considered to be uh, euphoric highs uh, of brains misfiring of synapses and neurons to the effect of, like, a a, a natural high. Uh, The high you would experience from an upper in a drug is like the high you would experience in a manic delusion of grandeur caused by mental illness, caused by your brain, not caused by recreational drugs, not at all. Uh, And so from there, I would experience hallucinations, both auditory and visual, seeing and hearing things that only I saw and only I heard, um, things that nobody else experienced around me, and everyone else didn't understand, you know, what is wrong with this kid. Uh, And so went to a psychiatrist, went to a psychologist, was put on medication. It was the wrong kind. Uh, And and I'll make it clear, medication doesn't solve these problems by itself. Medication can help, but it doesn't work for everyone. It works for some people, but it takes a long time to figure out how to find the right medications for people who are suffering mentally, often because uh, it's hard to diagnose these diseases. Uh, We know so very little about the brain, uh, and psychiatrists and psychologists are doing a great job mitigating through these waters, but it is very hard to to really nail it down and and find the kind of therapies that work for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took me eight years to come out of denial alone uh, to finally accept I have this disease or what they call this disease or something going on here, and I have to fight it, and I have to work very, very hard to stay mentally well, as much as I can and what I mean by that so you understand it is mentally well for me is to be able to hold a conversation with with you to uh, be able to go to work every day and do my job to be able to be loving to my wife and to be give back to my family and my friends um, that that's what it means to me it doesn't mean that these symptoms don't all occur they all occur every day I just have to find a way to cope with them
0: You're listening to The Story. Today, Shelley Scowen is chatting with suicide prevention spokesperson Kevin Hines about what led to his suicide attempt at San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. Next, we'll hear what happened on that fateful day and how God miraculously saved him using, of all things, a sea creature. We'll find out more when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Shelley Scowen talking to suicide prevention spokesperson Kevin Hines, who is actually one of only a few people in the world who have jumped off San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge and lived to tell the story. As we heard before the break, he was battling with mental health issues for years before his suicide attempt. Next, he discusses whether or not, as the years go by, he is finding it easier to stay mentally well and cope with his psychological struggles.
2: No, I, I found that uh, it, it doesn't necessarily get... The word easier is the wrong word. It doesn't necessarily get easier. But I found the ability uh, to be strong-willed and resilient within the disease. So whereas uh, I have a chronic suicidal ideation. They come often enough to where it could be dangerous. Uh, instead of acting on those suicidal ideations, instead of succumbing to them, uh, I go, I stand up, I tell my wife I need to go to the hospital, and I, and I go. Mm. That, that, what that means is it, this is something that people don't quite understand how rare it really is to have a severe mental illness like I do, a severe form of bipolar disorder, uh, and to be so self-aware. That I know every symptom, and, and before it happens, it's there. Mm-hmm. And I know who I need to talk to, uh, what I need to do to uh, to keep myself safe. Yeah. Whether that means going and sitting with my father uh, until it passes or walking with my wife into a psych ward um, in San Francisco, that's what I have to do.
1: We should also remind people that if this story has raised concerns for you or someone that you know, then you can contact Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. Or if you'd like someone to talk and pray with you, then call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. Kevin, tell us your story. Tell us about the day that you went to the Golden Gate Bridge and you attempted to end your life.
2: You know, um, I went there because... My brain was overwhelming me. Uh, people don't really understand what that means. You have to think about how the brain is the single most powerful organ in your body. If your brain is malfunctioning in a sense, there goes the rest of you. And that's what was happening uh, with this brain disease. And I was out there pacing back and forth, believing I had to die. I never wanted to take my life, it wasn't that simple. Uh, I desperately wanted to live. But I believed that I was useless. I self-loathed. The brain disease brought me to such a depression that I believed I didn't belong here and that I wasn't uh, worthy of this world. And, and so it brought me to the bridge. And I'm not going to go into the detail of the actual jump. I do that enough. I think what I want to talk about is the, the three miracles, I believe, that, that kept me alive that day. Uh, and the first was that when I went over the rail, a woman happened to be driving by in a red car. And she happened to see me go over and immediately call her friend in the Coast Guard. And they are the ones that pick up the bodies in the water when that happens. So when she called her friend in the Coast Guard that she just saw that, they had a jump, in a sense, on on the attempt. And so they got out there so quickly. They got out there faster than I would uh, set into hypothermia and drown. She happened to be one of the best friends of my high school band teacher, which is why I found out about this story. (laughs) And then when I was resurfacing in the water, just striving to stay afloat, uh, having lost temporarily the use of my legs because I broke my back, my T12, L1, L2 lower vertebrae, into shards like glass. And they popped and splintered throughout my inside, lacerating me internally. And uh, I was bobbing up and down in the water, praying, God, please save me. I don't want to die. God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake, and he absolutely answered those prayers. He answered those prayers when a creature of some sort started circling beneath me. And I initially, I thought, oh, it's a shark, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat me, and that's it. Well, I was, uh, I was on a show called Primetime Live with uh, the uh, news anchor John Quinonez, who does that international show, What Would You Do?, And I said to John on the show, the host of the show, I said, uh, I thought there was a shark beneath me. And a man wrote into the show, and he said, Kevin, I am so very glad you're alive, as I was standing less than two feet away from you when you jumped. He said, what happened that day has haunted me until now. He, He said also, there was no shark, Kevin. It was a sea lion. And as you were wading in the water, it began bumping you. And then you begin floating atop the water, and it began circling beneath you, literally bumping you up. Wow. Uh, but if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is.
1: That's now incredible. I know people that
2: talk about the sea lions and the dolphins and the other sea creatures that have come to the aid of humans all over the world. And some would call it just a statistical anomaly, i.e. it had to happen to someone. But I firmly believe that... I was saved that day by a much higher power than myself, and that, that, that faith in, that, I, that I hold dear is a faith in God. I feel like I was carried down to the waters safely enough to open my eyes in them so that I could fight to live. Mm. Uh, I absolutely feel that. And then when I was above that water, struggling to stay afloat, this creature came to my aid and, and at least kept me up until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. And I will never forget that. I will never neglect that part of the story because I've had people come to me and say, my faith has been renewed by your story. And that, there's nothing better than that when you're a person who's filled with such hope and faith in, in, in God. And uh, nothing better than bringing someone back on that path. And uh, anyway, I, I, this, the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. The, these two beautiful human beings jumped in the water. They hoisted me onto a flatboard. They got me to an ambulance, got me to safety, and that ambulance took me to the hospital. And it is my understanding that the hospital, the 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 back surgeon that came into play was not supposed to be there that day. He had stayed for whatever reason. It wasn't because of me. And when I arrived, he'd heard about me and he opted to do my back surgery. A 14-hour surgery to save me the ability to walk and to, and to fix my back and make sure that I could out of that hospital and have a full recovery, which I did. Wow. And the, the, the thing there is he happened to be one of the foremost back surgeons, at least on the west coast of, of uh, America. He was amazing. While under the knife, right, while under the scalpel, uh, I had a violent asthma attack because did, they didn't give me enough anesthesia. And while that was happening, the scalpel was in my belly. And he weaved his magical hands out of there and didn't recut me at once. And then they put me under, and he finished the surgery. And I have fully recuperated physically. Now, of course, I have chronic back pain, but who cares? I'm alive. Hmm. Um, And and all of these things, these pieces came together uh, to not only save my life, but to give me everything I had prior to the attempt physically. Yeah, uh, but then it was hard. See, then I had to do all the work mentally. Then I had to get back on track in my mental well-being, mm. and that that has lasted until today. Uh, I, I have all the symptoms we discussed earlier. Um, I have suicidal ideations. Right now, for me, it's about coping with them, fighting them tooth and nail, and praying every day so that I can.
1: Yeah, just incredible how you had um, the physical recovery and also the mental recovery from all of that, and just incredible how God had his hand on you the whole time. What was it like? I mean, it seconds... still
2: does, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I-, I was just going to ask, where seconds before you had taken that step, you had jumped off the bridge uh, with the intention of dying, And then all of a sudden you hit the water and you had this will to live. What was it that changed?
2: Well, you know, it was an instant regret the second I I went off that rail. Mm. When my hands left that rail and I was in free fall, I instantly realized I had made the greatest mistake of my life. And I thought to myself, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. And then I hit the water. Wow. Happens with people typically in suicidal ideation is that it, it, if it is caused by mental instability, it is impulsive. Uh, whether planned for some time or planned for one hour, it is, the act is impulsive. Right. And when you get to the point where you're so self-loathing and, and you believe that you have to die because there's no other option, and you're in so much mental pain, that taking your life is, is the only option, which is uh, it shouldn't be the option for anybody. Suicide should never be the solution to any problem. I firmly believe that. Um, because of mental struggles, and when I went over the rail, I knew I would made a mistake immediately. And when I say that that my guardian angel, or rather God, carried me down, I mean he, he repositioned my body. I was falling head first. Had I hit the water head first, I'd be dead. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I fell in a position uh, that is apparently the only position where one survives that fall. Um, wow. Anyway. It, it's, uh...
1: I, I guess, too, as you're talking about all these miracles, you can see that God not only loves you and cares about answering your prayer there and then, but that God does have a plan for your life. I mean, and here you are getting out and speaking to thousands of people across the world about these things that I guess people don't generally talk about. You are becoming the voice for the voiceless and getting out and, and letting people know so that we can hopefully prevent it in other people as well. God had that plan for you. God had big things in mind for your life right from the beginning.
2: You know, um, my parents used to say I was like the energizer buddy. I had so much energy that I, you know, just kept going. And, um, I I believe that plan is clear. And, uh, to date, I have talked to over over half a million people around the world about my struggles personally. Personally, have talked in front of those, that many people. Mm-hmm. I've written my book, and and I, I just got a note from some people that are now using the book in a child psych unit uh, with the 20-step toolkit at the end of the book to help people stay mentally well. And that warmed my heart, that, that this piece of literature that I put together, I mean, it's not the greatest book in the world, I'll be honest with you. It's, uh, it's got a few typos in it. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I wrote it from my heart. And people from all over the world, Japan, China, Australia, Italy, they're writing to me and telling me how, how much it's meant to them. That I told my story and I told it in such a bold way. You know, I didn't leave anything unturned. And when you read the book, you, you feel the pain I went through. But it's, it's for a purpose. It's so you can understand that you can go through pain. And you can come out at the other side. And today is not tomorrow. And your future can be bright. With a great deal of hard work if you're struggling mentally. It takes hard work to live mentally well when you're struggling, like I do. Uh, But it is plausible. It is most likely. Uh, It just, it's just, you have to come to a point and come to the ability uh, to be self aware and to be responsible, a responsible person who struggles mentally because that's the only way you can survive. Yeah. And, And you gotta pray.
1: Yeah. Let God be your strength through it as well. That's right. Yeah.
2: I'm a conduit. I'm a, I'm a piece of the puzzle of this great big world. We all are. Uh, we all have stories. We've all been through pain. My story is no different. It's, it's just uh, maybe seems more uh, large or whatever, but it, it's it's no different than yours. The pain you've been through is as valid as the pain I've been through. Let's come together, let's pray together, and let's be honest about our struggles mentally so we can change the world and so that people around the world who struggle like I do don't have to live in the shadows don't have to pretend it's not happening you can tell the truth to anyone around you and they won't judge you let's take the judgment out of the way we do things and and look at people for who they are beautiful human beings
0: that was Shelley Scullin talking to suicide prevention spokesperson Kevin Hines who is one of only a few people in the world who've jumped off San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge and lived to tell the story. And what a remarkable turnaround in his life. As he shared, he still has struggles with thoughts of suicide and other mental health issues, but he's learned coping strategies and his faith in God is helping him overcome these challenges and be a blessing to others. It's fantastic. I'm glad Shelley had a chance to chat with him while he was in Australia. And as she mentioned, if anything discussed today has raised concerns for you or someone you know, you can contact Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. Or if you would like someone to talk and pray with you, then call one pray for me That's one pray for me Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story With someone today Next time on The Story
1: I called out to God I just said God I can't do this anymore And if you exist And you are supposed to be my Father who loves Me and once cares for me Well then you better prove to me That you are there And that you Love me or else I am going to finish it off Today
0: Charlie Pickering was born in Sri Lanka but has lived most of her adult years in Australia. In young adulthood, she went through a dark period and the negative experiences wove their way deep into her heart and her poetry. We'll find out how she eventually stumbles on what she calls the God Factor next time. The Story. story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.